Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Dimmel. I'm a blogger, author of two books. I ran a nonprofit and was also a pastor. You could say I've lived some life. I'm here now inviting you to go behind the mirror as we drop the masks and dig deep into real conversation. Welcome. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Oh my goodness, do we have an episode today. Today we are tackling the age-old question of how do I know who my real friends are? Or I don't feel like I have any real friends and I want friends that I can go deep with. I want friends I can be honest with. I want friends that I know are going to be ride or die with me to the end, right? This is the question that everyone faces in life, especially the older we get. And so today, we're just going to hit this topic headfirst. And through my life, as you've heard me talk about in podcasts, I have uncovered jewels along the way of friends that I know will be with me to the end, friends that I can be 100% ugly, raw, transparent with. And over the years, I've also had a lot of friends who weren't that way, and I learned some things. And so I dug through my journals. I dug through kind of the last 10 years, to be honest with you, and came up with a list of the four truths inside of real friendship and what you can do to look for. And these are the questions that I go through when I meet new people. And when I tried to decipher who I can trust, who are the safe ones. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to go over these four points, which are, how do they react to your honesty? How do they treat their other friends? Do they have integrity? And we're going to actually dive into what that word means, because a lot of us think we know what it means, but there's a much simpler definition. And do they love you without trying to change you? What does that look like? We're also going to talk about what to do with shame-based friends, how your spirituality is the most sacred place about you, and how to guard it inside of your friendships. Oh my gosh, such good stuff here. Such a great episode today. Can't even wait to get into it. So before we tackle this wonderful age-old question. We have a new five-star rating on iTunes. This is by Hopeful720, and they say, I stumbled across your podcast today. I feel like you are a friend sitting across from me in a coffee shop. This last season has been incredibly hard for me. It's nice to be reminded that it's okay to sit in it and feel it and to reflect. Thank you for being real. You are a light. Oh my goodness. I love you. I want to go to coffee with you. You're amazing. See, this is the type of friend you want. Whoever you are, Hopeful 720, you are going to love this episode as is everyone else listening because this is gold stuff. These are the kinds of people you want to dig in and find. And when I started this podcast, this is what I wanted this to be. I wanted this to be a place where we can have those honest, real conversations, and hopefully they'll inspire you to carry these conversations out of this podcast and into your circle of friends and into finding who those deep friendships can be. So love this review. 
Thank you, Hopeful720. And if you would like to be mentioned in an upcoming episode, maybe even next week, do me a favor, go to iTunes right now, give this a five-star rating, put your review in, and you might be mentioned next week. So without any further procrastination, we are going to hit this topic of friendship. So glad you're here. Such good stuff. Can't wait to hear feedback from you guys after. Here we go. So here I am sitting in my house that should be being cleaned, but you know what? This is where we're at in life, and I knew that this was a topic that hits me all the time. People ask me these questions all the time, and I myself ask these questions all the time. (laughs) And here I am in what I call round three of my life. Um, I feel like I've lived a couple different lives. Um, And I'm in this chapter, and I feel like I'm finally getting a bit of a handle on this question. Okay, the question is, I want to go deeper. I want to have really close, intimate friendships. How do I know who to invest in? How do I know who is going to return that investment? How do I know who is going to be safe? This is like the age-old question. And unfortunately, Christians are not great at this. Unfortunately, my career spent inside of Christian groups left me pretty empty in this department. And it took a lot of learning the hard way of how to discern and how to figure out the signs, if you will, of people who are really worth running the long haul with. And we're all worth running the long haul with, but what I mean by that is who is worth putting your investment into their bank because you're going to get a good return on your investment. Everyone is capable of giving you a good return. Unfortunately, just a lot of people choose to live in such a way that doesn't allow them to invest back. And so for you on your journey and for me on my journey, I do not have the time or the energy or the space left inside of my heart for relationships that are going to turn out empty. I just, I'm done. I'm done. And maybe you feel the same way. So this occurred to me the other day, these points that I'm going to go over, there's four points that, gosh, they're so telling when you go through these points as to how to know Who's, a, who's worth the investment? Who is a safe place for you to invest your heart, your time, your energy, and your emotions? Okay, so we're going to dive right in. This first point is going to sound super simple and super obvious, but I'll be honest with you, this did not hit me until like a few months ago. And I think somewhere inside I knew this, but the reality of how true this is just hit me. So the first point is be honest. Be honest. And when I say that, this is what I mean. I mean, when someone asks you, hey, how are you doing today? If it's someone that you are thinking that is a good friend of yours or someone that you are wanting to invest more of yourself into to develop a good friendship with or a solid, deeper relationship with, try out the honesty card. Just try it out. 
give it a whirl because you will know so much about their investment level on how they respond to your honesty. So a lot of us, and this is something I am literally just now becoming aware of inside myself. We have this thing where we are in tune with other people. We have rejection stories. We have stories where we're the ones that are left in the dust, right? And so we are so aware of any possible rejection that any question posed to us by someone we're in relationship with or someone we want to be in a deeper relationship with, we give the answer that we think they want. We give the safe answer. We give the answer that we think will guarantee zero rejection. But unfortunately, when we do that, we're building a false reality as to what the depth of our relationship with that person is. Because anything built on something that isn't honest can't be real. Like, how are you going to know if it's going to stand the test of time if your foundation is built on half-truths and white lies? Like, it's just, you're not going to get what you want in the long haul. So, although uncomfortable at first, being honest when asked questions from people that you want to be close with, it is such a good telling sign. So I'll give you an example. This just happened this week. A friend of mine texted the scenario that I just gave you and they said, hey, how's your week going? And this is a friend that I want to believe wants to invest and be a good friend. This is someone that I believe when they are pursuing a friendship with me, they don't have ulterior motives. Like they're not trying to get something out of me that they genuinely care about me. But I'm a bit unsure. Because it's kind of a friendship that is newly developing. Okay, so I know my trademark response, which would be, oh, things are okay, how about you, right? Like, divert any attention from myself and really the crap hole of a week that I've had and just focus on them because I know how to make other people happy. And that's usually how I have cemented myself in friendships is by pleasing, showing up for them, making others happy. Okay, so... Instead, like this, that inner voice said to me, why don't you be honest and see how they respond to you being real? Just try it out. And I was scared because I'm risking rejection, but I tried it out. And I, I, my first text that I ended up deleting was something like, oh, I'm okay. How are you? Right? Like I just said, well, I deleted that one and then I retexted and was honest and told them exactly what I was struggling with that week, exactly why I was frustrated, and exactly where I was that day, which I emotionally was not in a great place, and I was honest about that. And their response was very telling. The response I wanted would have been someone who responded to that well. Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that with me. What do you need? Right? Like, what can I do for you? Do you need to talk? Do you need to hang? What do you need? That's kind of what I was hoping for. But I did have a small suspicion that this friend was not pursuing me for all the right reasons. And so my suspicions were proved correct. Because when I said that, they were like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like that was it. Like that was the only response. And I was like, okay, I know exactly now what our relationship is. And now I can plan accordingly. 
So when you're brave enough to see who your real friends are, try the honesty card because it will, it will definitely show you within a matter of seconds what their investment level is with you. The trick of this, though, is that when they show you what their investment level is, believe them. I heard Oprah say, it was a quote, um, and I think it was a quote from Maya Angelou, but Oprah was quoting it, that said, when someone first shows you who they are, believe them. And I have wrestled with that for decades. I heard this quote decades ago, and I've wrestled with it for decades because I have this insatiable need to want to fix people. I have this insatiable desire to help everyone get better. Noble, maybe. Um, It can turn itself into a lot of good causes, of course. But at the end of the day, when I feel that my role in life is to fix other people and help them, I tend to see people as the end result rather than what they really are right there in the moment. And so when I see a response to my honesty previously, not currently, but old Anna, if I would have been honest and someone didn't give me the reaction that I needed or that would have shown that they were invested, I would have taken that as a clue of, oh, that's where I need to fix them. I can fix that. I can teach them how to be a good friend. I can teach them how to invest back. I can teach them to love me well. And then 10 years later, be heartbroken because they're still being exactly who they were when I first met them, which was someone who is not investing back. I'm continually investing and getting zero return. So when someone shows you their level of investment, their level of how much they really are invested in you emotionally and relationally, believe them. This honesty piece will show you that, but you have to be ready to be honest with yourself about the results And be honest with yourself about the reality that if you don't get the results you're hoping for, that it's not your job to then fix them because that will set you up for more years of torment. Okay, point two. Another good thing to look for is how do they treat their other friends? Are they the type of friend that will call you and give you the most intimate, juicy, gossipy details on all of their other quote-unquote best friends. But of course, they're sharing it with you under the guise of, I just don't know what to do. I mean, I've been praying for them. And I just like, I don't know what God wants me to do. Let me tell you what the situation is. And they divulge like this close friend of theirs, deep marital issues. They divulge deep like childhood trauma issues of their friend that really you have no business knowing. But they're just vomiting all of this information that they've been entrusted with. But you feel close and connected to them because they're trusting you with this information now. Bonds and friendships form over gossip all the time. And when you're in faith group circles, it's usually under the category of prayer or seeking wisdom or seeking counsel. Let me just say, the friends of mine who did this who would call me. I had friends who would call me and tell of me all of their air quotes, best friends information, asking me for wisdom and how to respond to that. I gave them wisdom. I gave them my best take on it. And I'll be honest with you. I feel like I gave a lot of really solid, good advice. However, 
what I took from those conversations was I will never trust you with the intimate details of my life because I know that if I do, you will call all of your other air quotes best friends and tell them everything I told you under the guise of how do I respond. And I didn't feel like going through that. I want to know that when I tell you something, it's a vault and you are safe and you are trustworthy. So the best way to predict someone's future behavior with you is to look at their past behavior with other people. How do they handle other people's secrets? How do they handle other people's pain? How do they handle other people's stories? Do they guard it? Do they protect it? Or do they vomit it everywhere? And when I say everywhere, I mean vomiting it to you. Because if they are vomiting other people's stuff to you that they were not given permission to do so with, more than likely they will do the same thing with everything you're trusting them with. So how do they treat their other friends? Um, along that same line, I think there is another truth in love that comes into play here. And what I mean by that is one of the most beautiful things about the way God loves us and this of course is in turn how we should love each other is that love is a protector it's a coverer love is not an exposing force so when someone shares someone else's deep stuff that they were entrusted to cover that they were entrusted to protect and they don't cover it, they expose it to you, the kind of love that they're operating in towards that friend is one that exposes, not one that covers and protects. I was told of a story the other night by a friend of mine. Oh my gosh, it led me to tears. She told me the story of this, I don't know if he was a pastor or I don't know if it was just like one of those, you know, testimonial stories that you hear in church. I don't know. But this man, I think he was a pastor actually. We'll go with that. It'll make the story better. So just knowing that that part of the facts could be a bit fudgy. I'm not sure. We'll just say that he was a pastor. Finds out that his wife has had an affair and is pregnant with this other man's child. And The story goes that he sits his wife down on the couch next to all of their children and he covers her with a blanket and he tells his children, he says, this is what God does for us when we make mistakes. He covers us in a blanket of protection. He does not expose us. We will cover and we will protect your mom and we will not expose her. Because this is how God loves us. And the story told from the children's perspective is that that really clicked for them. Like they got it. Like they connected with this beautiful imagery of God, of one who is safe and one who is protecting and not exposing. And they all were quickly, you know, she's there bawling under this blanket. And the children are like, Yes, we will cover her. We will not expose her. We will not shame her. We will protect this. That's the kind of love I'm talking about when I'm talking about protecting someone's story and not exposing it. So when you are looking for someone who's going to be a friend with you for the long haul, this is someone who you need to know that your story will be protected under a blanket by. 
Who are your blanket friends? The only way to know who your blanket friends are, are it's the ones who are not exposing their other friends. It's the ones who are putting blankets over all of their friends and holding all of their other friends' stories closely because love does not expose, it protects. Especially, especially mistakes, especially shortcomings, especially things that that person would be ashamed to have out in the open or embarrassed by or insecure about, right? Like that's the way God loves us and that's the way we're supposed to love each other. And that's really the kind of friend that we all want. We all want that friend. And I have friends like that. And these are friends I would jump off a cliff for in a hot second. I would like throw my body into a blazing, burning fire for them. Like I would die for these people because they would do the same for me. I know that everything I have shared, everything I've walked through, and really my life is fairly open, but there are pieces of my story that are sacred, that are painful. And those deep details, I know with those people will never escape them. They will cover me with a blanket. I know that they will as I will do the same for them. Those are the kinds of friends that you are going to need in your life and that you're going to want in your life. And the truth, the truth is too, if you want that kind of friend, you have to be that kind of friend too. And so some of these things, you know, that we're talking about today and this one in particular, it should be one of those like, oh, oh, am I that kind of friend? I've had to ask myself that question. Like, have I been that kind of friend? Hopefully your answer is yes, but if it's not, fine, change, you know, choose to be that kind of friend, choose to, to hold secrets. Well, choose to cover in love. It's, it's one of the best gifts we can give others. And it's one of the best gifts you can receive from someone else too. Okay. Third, third point here, um, is do the people that you want to have closeness with that you want to be in deep relationship with, are they people of integrity? And when I say that, all I'm meaning, because a lot of us run 20,000 miles ahead with what we think integrity means. When I say integrity, I'm, I'm breaking it down to be a very simple definition of this. Meaning, do the beliefs that they hold behind closed doors, are those the same beliefs you see them holding in public? So are they being people of integrity to their own beliefs, to their own convictions, to their own heart's place. Because people who hold integrity are able to do that. And these are the kind of people that you know are not going to flip on you or turn on you or change on you overnight because they are people of integrity. Who they are in private is who they are in public. And I've, I've seen this so often and it is unfortunate many pastors struggle with this where they will, for instance, they have no problem swearing up a storm inside their home. Four letters galore. But in public, from a pulpit or in conversation with people in their church, they'll act as though that's the most abhorrent thing to do, that they never ever would condone or be okay with foul language. That's not someone who's showing integrity. Um, another example would be, especially, especially I see this with, um, with men 
in leadership particularly, but just men in general in faith circles, you know, just shaming other people for struggling with pornography, but yet behind closed doors, it's like their number one nightly struggle. So that's not being a person of integrity. Another one is I I know other friends who have family who are gay and who they love and who they attended their weddings, but in public around their faith groups, they sound completely different when they talk about the LGBT community. They, they just completely turn on a dime. But yet inside their home, what they believe to be true is very different from what they say in front of their friends. So who you are and what you believe and what you are convicted by is your own right and it's your own journey. And none of us have any right to judge anyone's belief system or faith practices or personal convictions. We are all on our own journeys. And so people who are able to hold their own journey inwardly in private, but also still be strong enough to own it in public, these are people of strength and people of integrity who you can trust. And this, I'll be honest on this list when I was writing this one, this one was a challenge for me because it can be very scary to do this. This is probably the most hard one for me on this list is because many convictions that I have held over the last 10 years, I've been terrified to say. I've been terrified to begin to be open about because I was afraid I'd be rejected, right? Kind of going back to the first point and being honest, like rejection is a scary thing for me. And so one-on-one, I never counseled people outside of my own convictions. Um, But in groups of people where I felt outnumbered, I would just get really quiet. It's not that I would join in. Um, So maybe I had more integrity there than I thought. But I, I would just get really quiet and I would have a hard time saying, actually, guys, I feel a little bit differently. You know, I, I struggled to do that. Um, so I understand how hard this is, especially when you feel like you're going to be standing alone. Um, Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, is an excellent book in learning how to put this into practice. And I've, I've been like gushing about this book for, for like a month now because I, it's been so key in helping me put words and actions to putting this piece into practice because it, for me, the church groups and the party line that I'm expected to toe that I don't always agree with has been really hard for me because it has meant being alone in where I stand on things. And that's scary. And so I want to be someone who has loads of integrity. I want that. I want who I am behind closed doors to be owned and and embraced publicly. And I'm getting better at that, but I admit that it is scary. It is scary when you think you're going to stand alone. It is scary when you think you may be rejected. So look for people who are trying to put this into practice. Look for people who are able to be the one that says that they disagree with something or be the one that is maybe a little bit more quiet in a group of people who are all, you know, jumping in and ready to jump on a bandwagon of exclusion or, or anger or hate or gossip or something. And they're the ones kind of getting really quiet. Look for those people. Those are the people that, that are trying to hold integrity and trying to, to navigate their own personal beliefs and not being swayed by the majority. 
those are the people who you know will be safe because you know that they're not going to flip on you based on what everyone else could be thinking or saying about you. These are the safe ones. Um, and I will say the people that I have seen do this in action, um, oftentimes were the subject of gossip, oftentimes were the target of, of exclusion. And it was because they were different. And it was because they didn't join in on gossip. And a lot, especially women, bond over gossip. And when you see someone refusing to participate in that, they're kind of tapping themselves out of the group. I've seen women do this. And I immediately was like, I'm going to be her friend. She's a safe one. I, I like instinctively knew that. And so I'm not the one that you usually see historically in large groups of people, I'm usually the one with one or two friends hanging out on the outside because I have looked and looked and looked and I have spotted the ones that feel safe. And I am like, come with me. I want you to be my friend. (laughs) You're not into all this garbage. You're into depth. You're into realness and you are safe. So don't be intimidated by the groups. Don't be scared to be on the outside. I promise you there's often a lot more realness and community when you step outside of majority groups and you start building your own thing that's built on real, honest conversation and real people of integrity. It's vastly different. Okay. My last point, do they love without trying to change you. And I've written a lot about this um, because I believe that that is the definition of love. One that says, I take you as you are and I believe that you are enough as you are. And I want to be your friend. I want to be in relationship with you just for you being you. You don't have to change anything for me. Just be you. To me, that is the ultimate definition of love. And it can be really challenging to find people that A, you feel safe to be honest with, and B, you see them having integrity and not gossiping about other people, and C, you feel like when you are honest that they won't try to jump in, meddle, and fix you. It's one thing to ask someone for wisdom or ask someone for advice. These are great things if they are safe people. But if it's unsolicited advice, if it's unsolicited, pushy, pushy, kind of feeling controlling, manipulating behavior because they really feel like they have it right and you have it wrong and it is their God-given responsibility to fix you, that is not received as love. I have never met anyone who said to me that they felt loved when someone did that to them. Now, the argument that I hear most often by Christians is what they've been taught. I myself was taught this, that real love is brave enough to point out your sin and point you to Jesus and point you to correction. Real love does that. They, they say things like, oh, well, I will love you enough to tell you the truth about your behavior so that you may repent and change. That is the quote-unquote love message inside of a lot of faith communities in the Christian realm. I could not disagree with that more. I do not believe that that is real love because I don't see Jesus ever doing that. And Jesus came to give us the picture, right, of what God was really like. And he gave us this picture of a God who says, you don't have to change 
for me to be in relationship with you. You don't have to be something you're not for me to have you over and have a meal. You don't have to say this prayer or say this confession or change this relationship status for me to offer healing to you. You know, when we see him healing the masses, did he go around asking for salvation confessions and asking for repentance statements and asking for We'll leave this relationship because that one I disagree with. And you need to not be close to this person anymore because they're, they're shaming your character. And you need to pull away from this person because they're not Christian enough for you to hang out with. Well, you better change this. Stop watching those kinds of movies. Stop doing this and that. No. He, it says he was moved with compassion and he healed. End of story. End of story. And there... There's a lot of, you know, I, I know people say, well, what about the disciples? He told them to, to literally like drop what they were doing and follow him. Of course he did. That's always what Jesus asks you to do. He will always come in to your situation, your mundane, regular stuff and say, hey, come with me. Let's try something different. Never with the message of what you're doing isn't enough. Never with the message of, oh, being a fisherman, yeah, that's kind of beneath you. We don't do that in our Christian group. So come do something more holy. He did not show up with that attitude. He was like, hey, you were created for great things. Come with me. I want to get to know you. I like you. Come with me. And there was something captivating enough about his personhood that drew them to want to be his friend. He wasn't suggesting that he was going to be the fixer of them. At least we don't see that. I see them wanting to be his friend and hang out with him because he seemed like a really amazing person. And he never suggested that he was, you know, some crazy savior from heaven. They figured it out on their own. He didn't have to say anything. They figured it out. They're like, oh my gosh, this could be the Messiah we were taught was coming, right? Like they put all that together. So he did not come as someone to fix them. He did not come as someone to save them in a way that he was um, preaching that at them. He came to love them. He came to heal them. He came to be in relationship with them. They trusted him. They followed him. And the, the picture... Um, that this paints is beautiful. But again, the pushback that I've often heard is, and you look at my blogs when I talk about this, and there is always a comment on there about, well, what about the woman caught in adultery? And he said to her, go and sin no more. That was the definition of love right there. That was the definition of love because he loved her enough to tell her to not sin anymore. He saved her from stoning. He saved her from being killed, but he certainly sent her on away with the repentance message. Okay, let's just start with this. It was the law to put her to death for committing adultery. And I know people, especially ones in faith groups that like to feel like they're better than others, enjoy reminding someone that they're just obeying the laws of the land. Got to obey the laws of the land. The laws of the land say don't do that. So you can't do that. Guess what? The laws of the land say you deserve death. Well, you should have known. You chose that. Now you get death. 
their reaction to her does not surprise me one bit because people who are in religious groups still behave this way. We love to point out other people's shortcomings. We love to shove the law down people's throats as though we've never done anything remotely unholy or shameful. Like, we love shaming people. Christians are the best at this. Look at the signs they hold outside buildings. Look at the quotes and the messages they post on Facebook, constantly saying, you're not enough. As you are, you're not enough. And so what I love about this story is that not only did he disrupt the law of the land and the law of the church by not allowing her to be stoned, but he says this phrase, go and sin no more. When you break down that word sin and you go back to its original translation, it actually means shame. How it turned into this sin word, I don't know. But when you go to the root of it, the root of that word means shame. So what he was in essence saying to her was this, go without any shame. Do you know how freeing that is? Like I get goosebumps saying that and my eyes start getting all welled up because I want to be loved like that. That goes back to that story of that pastor and his wife and the covering thing. Like that's that picture that says you made a mistake. Everyone want everyone here wants to uncover you and shame you and punish you and make an example out of you. But I don't. I want to cover you and say, don't feel shame. You're loved. You're enough. Go in peace. That kind of love is revolutionary. A, because it's completely different from any other love that the world, that people have to offer. And B, because that kind of love causes you to see yourself differently. When you don't see yourself with shame or regret or loathing or self-inflicted punishment that all of us are so good at doing inside of our heads, when you don't see yourself like that, you behave differently. You know, people that go from one cycle to the next cycle to repeating the cycle, right? Where that cycle of whatever it is that they're doing that they hate that they're doing over and over again. Usually when you dig to the root of it, it's because shame is in play. They're so ashamed of what they did the first time. They cannot forgive themselves. They cannot let go of it. They punish themselves internally over and over and over again. And they do it all over again. It's like the self-loathing thing is what's pushing them to repeat the same behavior. And yet when love comes in, it, it disrupts that cycle. Love stops the cycle and turns it on its head. When you believe that you're enough, you see yourself and your life differently. I know I do. I've, I think I've shared this um, in one of the first episodes. The, the first episode I talk about the shame that I've carried over having a second divorce. And I'm still, still 
having to monitor that and be very cautious of my thoughts and very careful about what kind of thought cycles I let go in my head. Um, I have had to surround myself with people who are saying the same message that God has said to me the whole time, which is you're enough. You're enough. And I did, you know, I didn't go have affairs and I didn't, you know, do these awful things to wreck my marriage. In fact, I gave everything I had to build a good marriage and it still failed. So the shame I carry is even when I give my best, it still doesn't work, (laughs) right? That's the shame I carry is I fasted, I prayed, I was faithful, I was loving, I was doing everything that was ever taught to me textbook wise to do right. And they still fell apart. What kind of a loser am I that I did everything the book said to do and I still couldn't keep a happy home? I still couldn't keep this marriage together. And I know the truth is that two people have to be working, right, to keep a marriage happy. One person can't carry the load by themselves. I know that. My therapist tells me that all the time, right? Like books tell me this. My logic tells me this. But somewhere inside where shame has crept in, shame says a different message. It says that I should have been enough to carry it for both of us. I should have somehow been enough to hold the whole thing together. Shame. So when love comes in and love disrupts that message and it tells me I'm enough. What I did was enough. How I loved was enough. Go in peace. Go and feel no more shame. That place when I'm able to land there is revolutionary. Because I see myself with heavenly eyes rather than condemning low earthly eyes. Low earthly eyes will always say you're not enough. They will always say that you came up short. They don't take circumstances into play, right? Like when I think about that story of adultery, we have no context about her story, which at first when I I, um, taught this story and at first when I taught it, I was angry at scripture about that. I was angry. We didn't have context. I wanted to know why did she have an affair? If she knew death was on the line, why on earth did she do it? I want to know. I want to know the context. I want to get inside her head and know where she was at because maybe then I could empathize. Maybe then I could understand a little bit more why she did what she did, why she was willing to risk everything. I want to know her story. But I think it's purposeful that we don't have that information because most of the time, No one has that information. Most of the time, when there's a story where stones are about to be thrown, you have one sliver of a fact, and the crowd builds an entire theory as to why they deserve punishment and death. And the one person in the room that can see the whole story, the divine God himself, He looks in and sees what we can't. And he looks with compassion. He's moved with compassion. And he says, do not feel shame. 
I'm going to cover you. I'm going to protect you. Go in peace. Do not feel shame. I'm different than these people. It's one of my most freeing realizations that I ever had in a Bible story was that one. That one did it for me. That one changed my view on God. It turned the whole thing on its head. Because for once, I felt permission to relax. For once, I felt permission to breathe in my own skin. For once, I felt like I don't have to work and work and work and work for God to say I'm enough. If he can look at us and me in my most shaming thing, when it's the scenario that everyone would want to throw a stone at me and everyone would want to condemn me and everyone would want to put me up as a spectacle, which I've lived these moments. I know these moments. Jesus is not the one in the room instigating that. He's the one in the room saying, I'm going to cover you. Don't feel shame. So tying this into our friendship story, when there's a a group of people in your life and the voices of those people sound like that, they sound like the voice that says, I'm going to cover you. Don't feel shame. You're safe with me. Those are Jesus-loving people. Those are people who are embodying the spirit of the divine. Those are people who have tapped into an understanding of God that is golden. The unfortunate thing is that, and I've experienced this, I've lived this, where I have been put in the center, put up as a spectacle, excommunicated out of groups, shamed, And the hardest part about those moments, and I'm not referencing, I've tasted a little bit of it recently, but the majority of this, what I'm referencing now happened about um, close to about 15, 16 years ago. And it was traumatic for me. I, I won't deny that because the people I thought who loved me were doing it. But One of the hardest things for me in that moment was that they were using God language. They were using scripture to do it. They were using this safe place that I know, which is my relationship with God, to shame me. Your spiritual side of you, your spiritual being, is the most sacred place inside of you. And no one has the right to judge that or shame that ever. So any friends that you have in your life that want to try to judge that part of you or tell you that part of you is wrong or tell you that that part of you is broken somehow and you don't feel loved and you feel shamed and you feel not good enough, they're picking at the most sacred part of you. And that's not okay. I wrote a blog um, on spiritual abuse. And if you have people in your life that have felt like that, I really strongly encourage you to go to my blog and read that article because um, I I list the signs of spiritual abuse and um, what I've learned since that one incident that happened to me 15 years ago. And 
I've learned how to safeguard myself from people who behave like that. And it's protected me from going through that again. Like I said, I've tasted little bits of it here and there, but for the most part, I can sniff out people like that right out out of the gate. And I'm like, mm, we're going to keep a nice guardrail here. <laughs> You're not going to be in my inner circle because I, I've, I am sniffing a familiar thing here and I am not interested in that. So people who respect the most sacred part of you, the God inside of you will never make you feel that way. And so back to this last point, do they love you without trying to change you? That's love. When they're able to love you without trying to fix you, without trying to correct you, without trying to shame you, love and shame never share the same space. Love and fear never share the same space. Love stands alone. Look for people that walk in love. These are the truths that I have been absorbing and soaking in and really seeing come to light in my own life. And I really hope that this gives you some tools to navigate your own friendships and your own relationships because you are worth feeling connected to people. You are worth feeling loved and seen and known and heard and understand, understood, sorry, understood by people. You're worth that. That kind of friendship is worth fighting for. I hope these gave you the tools to do that. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.